Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. Hello, it's Sarah Rachel Brown, your host and your producer. I hope you all are healthy and staying safe. It's been kind of incredible to see how quickly those within my creative community have been adapting to our new current circumstances. Perceived Value sponsors New York City Jewelry Week have been hustling real hard online and launched an Instagram live series entitled Checking In, during which, you know, they check in with jewelers, collectors, artists, retailers about how they're doing during this crazy weird time. Each episode lasts about 30 minutes on Instagram Live, and on May 29th, this coming Friday, yours truly will be going live with co-founder Bella Naiman. I highly suggest following NYC Jewelry Week on Instagram so you do not miss out on this series. It's good, y'all. It is May 26th as I release this episode, and this past weekend, I thought a lot about how it would have been the annual Society of North American Goldsmiths Conference, SNAG for which many of my dearest friends and peers would have been in Philadelphia to attend. Sending out a big old virtual hug to all the artists, students, educators, and curators that put a lot of resources into organizing events associated with the conference. So much of this type of work and effort is not paid work. We do it because we are passionate about our communities and the payoff is seeing our efforts enrich that community and in turn, hopefully cultivate future opportunities, future paid opportunities. Something I was extremely excited about was a collaboration I facilitated between Barry O'Neill, the company I work for, and Ethical Metalsmith students, which if you're an avid listener, you know I greatly support this organization and have worked with them in the past. Connecting these two groups was kind of a no-brainer. For starters, Anna Barrio, one of the founders, is on the board of Ethical Metalsmiths, which is the parent organization of Ethical Metalsmith students. Barrio Neal as a company is one of the industry leaders in ethical sourcing and sustainability, and a huge part of Ethical Metalsmith students' mission is getting students to think about ethical studio practices and sustainability. So what was this collaboration going to be? Well, the EM students had an annual online student exhibition called So Fresh, So Clean. I was honored to be their guest juror for 2019, and at some point, a conversation with either Susie Gonch or Lucy Louise Derrickson, which <clears throat> both have been on the podcast before, we talked about how great would it be if this online-only exhibition was viewed IRL. That's in real life. The SNAG conference was coming to Philly. Barry O'Neill bought a building and opened a stunning flagship showroom in Philly. And the Barry O'Neill founders were all about it. It was 
a beautiful thing. But Mother Nature had other plans, and, you know, I'm still hopeful that this collaboration will come to fruition at another time. So why am I rambling on all about this? Well, 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 well. Due to COVID, everything has become online only. Everyone's got an online exhibition. Everybody's got an online gallery. I love it. Adapt. Keep going. But guess what? Ethical Metalsmith students have been hosting an online exhibition for years. They've got this down. They know the ropes. And they have not one, but two calls for entry open right now. And yes, there are prizes. Cash prizes. So let's talk about these, shall we? First up, so fresh, so clean. This show highlights ways in which jewelers and metalsmiths are creating innovative work with sustainability in mind. EM students encourage applicants to ask questions and critically investigate their studio, processes, methods, and personal goals. Then show us what they've made. It's understood that a completely sustainable practice is an ever-evolving goal and, frankly, an impossibility in our current state. However, the first step is becoming aware of the ways our work impacts environmental and human health. This was a particularly unique year for students, and we want to remind students that the challenges and limitations that influenced your work this semester can certainly be discussed in terms of its environmental or social responsibility. They are looking forward to seeing how EM students rose to these challenges. So my favorite part, the prizes, which include an Emerging Artist Award, which the recipient receives $1,000, a Juror's Choice Award, which receives $500, and an EM Student's Choice Award, which receives $250. The deadline is quickly approaching. It is June 5th. So students, get to work and apply. You must be a member of EM Students, which costs $35, not that bad. And I love their broad definition of what a student is. So all you non-trads out there, mm-hmm, talking to you, if you take in a workshop at a craft school or a local fine arts center, or if you graduated last year, you still count as a student. So read their definition of what a student is before you decide this is not for you. Listen to my previous episode, number 36, if you have any questions about whether or not you think your work applies. But quick answer, it probably does. Their second call for entry is entitled, Academics in Pandemic. No beating around the bush with this title. Love it. Ethical Metalsmiths presents Academics in Pandemic an online exhibition showcasing the extraordinary efforts of faculty and students during a global pandemic. There is no membership required and no fee to apply, AKA no excuses. We are living through a defining moment across the world. Instructors have been asked at the drop of a hat to develop strategies to engage students through remote learning. Many students and educators have had no studio access, presenting unusual limitations for classes that are, you know, typically very tool-centered. Academics and Pandemic is an online exhibition that will act as a time capsule of this moment and celebrate the creative and perhaps weird output that results from these unusual situations from both students and instructors, which I personally interjecting here really love that concept. 
lost my place. Where am I? Oh, here we are. This will be a resource for educators developing remote courses for the summer and fall semesters, which sadly is the reality we're facing. Students are invited to submit up to five entries, which can include anything made during the global pandemic. This could be partially finished work, models, digital designs, temporary installations, videos, performances, field research, even project proposals. Instructors may consider submitting curriculum and assignments, video lessons or demos, student work, stories and reflections, or anything related to your experiences teaching this semester. You may also consider submitting your own studio work. So if you gave a lecture via Zoom and recorded it, boom, you have something to present. I am applying and I am so amped on this idea. So good on you, EM students. There will be award categories for both students and instructors, which include gift cards to Rio Grande and Columbia Gem House. And listen to this, educators. All instructors who apply will receive one year Ethical Metalsmiths Educator Membership. That's awesome. Deadline to apply is May 31st, which, wow, is less than a week away, I think. So get on it. Two really great opportunities from Ethical Metalsmith students. Thank you so much. You can find application details at ethicalmetalsmiths.org. Look under the Our Work menu. Questions can be directed to EM students at ethicalmetalsmithing.org. I am, of course, going to put all of this in the description of the podcast and on our website. But what's really important is to remember that May 31st and June 5th are the deadlines to apply. Write that down, set a reminder. So no new patrons to report this week, but I've been getting a lot of love and support through listeners rating and reviewing the podcast, which in case you didn't know, on iTunes. That is how people find us. More people find the podcast that maybe have never heard of me or aren't jewelers even. So that's really important to do. Um, Also, anybody who has reached out via DM or comment, I see it. It is appreciated. Thank you so, so much. I have been making big moves with my Patreon, which has kind of been neglected, not because I don't think it's important, just because I only have so many hours in a day. But thanks to the global pandemic, got a lot more hours in the day. Big things coming. All I'm going to say for now is become my patron. You can pledge as little as $1 per episode. And if each listener pledged $1, your girl would be a full-time podcaster. Let that sink in. So visit patreon.com slash perceived value and pledge a dollar to become my patron. Today's episode. It is my 51st episode my first episode of season four. And sadly, I think it's my last in-person interview for the foreseeable future. In late February, I was invited to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts, that's in Boston, Massachusetts, to speak with the students and record a podcast interview on campus. Shout out to Tanya Crane for the invite and a huge thank you to her and her lovely husband, Matt, for their incredible hospitality. The day began with me presenting to students, followed by a Q&A, which was really good. 
the students were really engaged and asking some pretty incredible questions, asking a lot of questions. And that's just not something you stop. You roll with it, which meant my time to record my interview was cut in about uh, half the time initially allotted. But my guests and I, we persevered and recorded a really great conversation, which was, you know, slightly rushed, but still good. However, in my haste, there are a few key questions I forgot to ask, one of which I feel is so important that up until this pandemic hit, I was planning on traveling back up to Boston to re-record our interview. But that is no longer on the table, and being that I will be recording interviews remotely for the foreseeable future, not sharing this in-person interview seemed ridiculous. So here's the deal. I asked my guests about their higher education and how they pay for it, and if they received financial support from outside sources such as their parents, I feel it's really important to get further insight into this circumstance. So once my interview with Dr. Emily Storer had ended, and I realized I never asked what her parents did for a living, I was really frustrated with myself. Because that one question can tell so much about a person's socioeconomic background. Dr. Emily Storer is the only curator dedicated to jewelry in the United States. She works at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and oversees a collection that spans 6,000 years and includes more than 22,000 objects. Emily's parents paid for her education, which is amazing. And because of this, I felt it was important to include an amendment within my introduction. I've never done this before, but you know what? It was important. I asked Emily to send me a short description of what her parents did to support themselves, and I am going to read that for you now. In her words, my mom has a degree in clothing and textiles, and as a young woman wanted to be a buyer, but she stayed home with my sister and I when we were young and then worked part-time at a local elementary school once we were both in school. When I was in high school, she returned to college to become an elementary school teacher, and she taught until she retired last year, and now she helps take care of her grandchildren. I don't know what I would do without her. My dad started out as a sixth grade teacher and began working part-time at UPS to make extra money. Financially, though, it made more sense for him to work for UPS full-time than it did to teach. He worked his way up from a driver to HR manager. When I went to college, he retired from UPS and became a math teacher. He has too much energy to really retire, so now he works part-time at Amazon. Thank you, Emily, for sharing this further insight that, you know, I just felt was too important not to share with my listeners. So, please welcome today's guest, Dr. Emily Storer. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's a little warm in here. Um, Do you like being able to hear your own voice? No, it's really weird. Yeah, most people hate it. It's totally (laughs) fine. Um, But I'm going to turn you up. I'm typically a loud talker. Okay. This is fun. Um, Okay, so remind me, you have a son. Yes. How old is he? going to interrupt us at some point. He's 19 months. Okay. Oh, Okay. You know, it always throws me when people with real He's like kids. a year and a half. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Not a that lot I of development happens in those four weeks, though. Not that I can't <laughs> do the math, but, you know, it's just difficult. Um, okay, so our levels are looking good. 
and we're in a library, which is fun. Hi, Emily. Hi. Hey, it's nice <laughs> to see you. You guys, if you could only see this, this is really funny. My mic stand uh, is biting the dust. I knew I had to like, hold on a second. Ugh. I knew I had to re-up, but um, it's just not going to work for me. So my microphone is balanced on books that Tanya Crane and Suzanne Pugh brought for me. Oh, I think... <laughs> I think they found a mic stand. <laughs> oh, he found a mic stand. <laughs> well, it works. I'm going to stick to the books. I think it's funnier. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, okay, so. I thought this would feel more natural, but having this microphone like right in front of your face feels really... Really weird? Yeah, really weird. I can't really see you. It's not as casual. I know. Well, you know, we're having this <laughs> we're having this microphone issue, but normally I try to set it up a little bit more so we can have better eye contact, but um, I'm doing the best I can with my book stack It's amazing. Here. It's, it's make it work moment, right? Oh, it's going to be even more so by the end. Oh, right. Your son's coming. Okay. Jumping right in. So I'm in Boston, you guys. Uh, I like Boston. I've been here once can't really say that I know that I like Boston because I really haven't seen much of it. Um, are you from here? I am from here. I grew up about a half an hour from Boston or I guess when I was growing up it was a half an hour. Now traffic's so bad it takes much longer to get home. Oh I've been hearing about this traffic thing. Yes. <laughs> mm, it can take like two hours to go eight miles or something. Yes that sounds about right. That sounds awful. Come on Boston get it together. Um, okay so you're like a local. I am. I'm lucky to be home and have this amazing job in basically yeah. my backyard. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to get to that. But first of all, you guys, I am here at, um, s s okay, so Tanya Crane invited me to come speak at School of the Museum of Fine Arts, correct? Is that the full name? That, well, now I think it's the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts. Right. So they added on Tufts because Tufts bought it. Yes. And this morning we got on a shuttle that was actually Tufts University, and that's in Medford, which is technically a different town, but just feels like a different neighborhood, right? Am I doing this right yet? That's right. You got it so far. It's it's confusing for an outsider. The school started in the MFA basement when the MFA was in Copley Square. Oh, guys, and the MFA is a Museum of Fine Arts Boston, um, which we drove past. I got to see it. looked nice. I'm excited about Have that. Have you never been inside? Never been inside. And I... you're leaving tomorrow. No, I'm not leaving till Saturday. Oh, okay, so maybe you can come inside. I should come inside. Um, and so then we take it to this campus, which is kind of in the heart of Boston. Um, and Tufts bought it. So we're right next to the museum. We kept the name, but now they added on at Tufts. So they've been here for a long time in this location. We're in the yeah. Fenway neighborhood of Boston. Uh, Fenway Park's just across the... Oops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah, so we've been here for a long time, but it's only in the last two years that it's been solely Tufts. Tufts. I mean, this is some prime real estate. Yeah. You have to pull this out of my cold, dead hands, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you don't, like never want to lose this location because it's amazing. Um, okay, so then I'm here. I did a little artist talk today, which I love doing. And so I really was excited for the opportunity to speak with you, Emily, because ever since I met you, I've been like, oh, I want her on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't know. Um, so those who have like listened to the podcast and follow along with whatever I'm doing, uh, last year I presented at the East Carolina ECU Symposium, ECU, East Carolina University, check. Um, Emily was also presenting, um, and fun fact, we get on this tiny little plane because 
where is it at? It's a Greenville. From Charlotte to Greenville, I think. Yeah. It's a little puddle jumper. Yeah, one of those tiny planes. Um, I think I was the last one on the plane. I was you like running were, for it. Because I thought I was going to have the whole thing to myself, <laughs> which, you know, no offense is like the best. Um, and then, then you jump in. And I was like, okay, I got somebody next to me. And then Tanya Crane was behind us. It was so funny. We're all just like getting on the same plane. Um, and then she introduces me to you. And you are you have a really cool job okay you also have a very long title yes i do so can you say that sure okay go i am the rita j kaplan and susan b kaplan curator of jewelry okay at the museum of fine arts boston yeah it's long um and then also (laughs) emily storer 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 i always have a hard time with your last name it's a really hard last name okay well i'm working on it i think i always try to put it's like a place you shop and then an er Oh, you know what? That's so much easier when you put it that way. I think I always try to put the R right behind it's the T. It's the H. Stror. There's an H in there, and it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't worry. I won't misspell it on the podcast, though. <laughs> um, so why do you have such a long title? So I'm in an endowed position, and okay. um, it was endowed by the, let's see, the, the foundation's even longer, the <laughs> Rita J. and Stanley H. Kaplan Family Foundation. Um, the position was named for um, Rita and Susan, who are mother mm-hmm. and daughter jewelry collectors. Okay. Um, and the family founded Kaplan Testing. And so in that oh. title is, you know, and because they're mother-daughter, they're not husband-wife, you have to say Kaplan twice. Yeah. So that's why it's so long. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so they had a lot of money, and they loved jewelry, and they bought a lot of it. Well, Susan's still alive. She lives oh. just down the street. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, crazy. Does that mean that you... Actually, I shouldn't say they're both still alive. Her mother lives in Florida, and oh. Susan lives down the street, yeah. Oh, cool. So then is she, like, in your life on a regular Very basis? Very much so, yes. What? Okay, so I just always refer to you as the only jewelry curator in the U.S. Because that's the truth, right? Like, you're the only one with that official title? I think you have to qualify it a little bit. I hate saying that, but it is technically true, I think. But I yeah. think it's really the only... Cu- curator of jewelry position in a fine art museum because there are other places where jewelry is also paid attention to but there's no one else that has a curator of jewelry title that's in a established museum that I know of I'm looking for colleagues so if you can find someone else who has that position I'd love to know about them yeah if you're out there holla um (laughs) so that's really exciting okay before we get ahead of ourselves Emily so I meet you on this plane um and you like my hair nest so you immediately <laughs> were on my good side um we presented at the symposium together and they did a great job of giving us time to like connect with other presenters we drank some red wine we talked about jewelry um and then i got to see you at the snag conference because you're on the board of snag that's right yeah i'm on the board of directors and i am about to run for president in may <laughs> aka gonna be president of snag um <laughs> which makes sense i mean curator of jewelry i'm sure you try to find ways in which you can kind of immerse yourself within the greater field yes i'll actually be the first non-maker to be president uh which is really intimidating i think um oh, wow. i have you know my position is interesting i oversee a collection that's ancient to contemporary yeah. so i really have to be uh, a generalist in that role mm-hmm. and so i've been i try really hard to have a presence in all different aspects 
aspects of the field. And mm -hmm. the jewelry world's so weird in that it's really fragmented. So there's like the yeah. contemporary jewelry world, the fine jewelry world, the historical jewelry world. And so, mm -hmm. you know, next week I'll be at Tafaf in Maastricht, which is this big fine art fair. And then in mm -hmm. May I'll be at Snag. And so I try and keep my hands in a little bit of everything. And certainly mm -hmm. having a leadership position at Snag is a, I think it's a big deal. And it's a kind of connection to the contemporary world that I want to make and, and a relationship that I want to continue to to have and yeah. build and strengthen. Yeah, that's exciting. Thank you for even wanting to do that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like you have a lot on your plate and a lot of people to connect with in terms of that. Yeah, it is kind of crazy how the field of jewelry is so fragmented, how there's so many different um, categories of it and types and they're all kind of separated in a lot of ways and yeah. So you're from Boston. I am. The outside. Around here, yeah. Also, good on you for getting a really cool job in your backyard. I know, right? Uh, that's kind of the dream, and it does not happen for most oh, people. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm very lucky. And it, it, I would not have guessed this is where I would, ended up, would have ended up. Yeah, but you're happy you did. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. some people want to leave days. home. Most days. Yeah. Oh, most days. I wanted to leave home badly. I mean, I left home right after high school, and then I somehow ended up back here. I never thought I'd be back here. So where did you leave to when you graduated? <laughs> I went to Mary Washington College in Virginia. I have no idea it's what about, that is. It's a state school. <laughs> okay. About an hour outside of D.C. Okay. And um, I was only there for a year. And mm -hmm. I, I decided I wanted to transfer, and I really wanted to go to Maryland. And my mother really wanted me to come home, and she told me she'd buy me a car if I came home. Oh, my God. Did you take the car? <laughs> I took the car. I 110% <laughs> would have taken the car. What kind of car was it? It was a Kia Sportage. It was really cute. Oh. It was like a little Barbie's beach car, we called it. Good on mom. Okay. So what were you pursuing? Like when you went to school, what did you want to be? I really don't think I knew what I wanted to be. I've been mm. reflecting on that, thinking about this interview. I um, was studying psychology mm. and, you know, I ended up going to school for a long time. And when you're in a psychology program or something, you know, there's a lot of talk about grad school and stuff. And I, I didn't imagine at that point that I was ever going to go to grad school. I'm not a natural student and I didn't mm. think that that was going to be for me. So I don't think I necessarily had a straight path. Mm -hmm. Um, so I transferred to UMass Amherst, um, which is right by home, which is about two hours away. Yeah. Which you could drive to with your car. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I graduated with a psychology degree. I took the LSAT. I thought I would go to law school. I worked oh. for the district attorney's office, actually, when I when I graduated. I was a victim witness advocate working with um, a lot of domestic violence and sexual abuse victims. Um, I had done that all through undergrad as, an, mm -hmm. as a paid intern and then got hired after I was done. So I had a really different beginning part of my career um, than where I am now. Okay, so you do that. You don't go to graduate school, though. You started working for the district attorney. Right. How long did you hold on to that job? So I was there for two years. Oh, sorry. Real quick question. Did you pay for college, like did, your undergrad? No, my parents paid for it. I was very lucky. Nice. And I uh, went to state schools. I couldn't imagine paying, like, a private school price. And that was my own, like, in my own head. I was like, school's really expensive. Yeah. I can't imagine paying a lot. So I, so I, yeah. until I got my PhD, I went to all state schools. And they kind of had a say in that probably in some regard, right? Or were they like, do whatever you want or? I, I mean, I think that it, I, I don't know. I, I just, I felt that way. And so yeah. we never had that conversation really. That's nice. So then you're working at the district attorney. It sounds like that job. I have a friend who's a social worker, um, 
And it sounds like that job would be kind of emotionally taxing in some regards. Very much so. And so that's really why I'm not still doing that. Yeah. Uh, It was really emotionally draining. And so I started to research, you know, other interests. And I really liked, you know, fashion and museums. And I found this program at FIT in New York. And I started to think about applying there. And I had never taken an art history class. I didn't didn't know much about museums. I didn't know much about anything. And I started taking... um, some prerequisite courses. I took a um, art history class at Harvard, and then at the then at the Mass Art. I took some language classes. I had to take some chemistry classes. I had to take. And you're in Boston, and you're pretty much just surrounded by schools, right? Which is why you can do this, like kind of, right? And hop around, yeah. yeah. And I was lucky then that my I worked for the state, and I, I was able to get a stipend to cover those prereq classes that I took. I just had convinced everybody that I was really interested in chemistry, and that I was just taking this for fun. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Work the system. Nice. So, um, yeah, and then I, I applied and and kind of took my career in a different direction. That is such a big leap. It was a huge leap because I really thought that I was going to go to law school or become a social worker. I'm sure your parents were like, great. I remember having to like break it to my parents <laughs> that I wanted to go to, like, to FIT in New York and they were like, it no. was a big shift. Yeah, they're like, wait, we thought we were going to have a lawyer <laughs> and now we're going to have a fashion designer what did but like what I mean it's one thing to be interested in about it it's a whole other thing to like like go for it oh my god I didn't know anything you didn't have a direction you didn't like I I didn't really know what I was stepping into like I didn't know I didn't even know what the career on the other side of that was gonna look like Mm. I I (laughs) applaud you oh my gosh that's crazy and then you get to live in New York of course which is a experience all of itself how long were you at FIT? I was there for two years, so I started the master's program there in 2005, and I graduated mm. in 2007. Wait, did p- mom and dad help with Matt, um, your MFA? They did. Oh, they're amazing. They're pretty amazing. I feel really lucky. Yeah. So then you graduate. Is there any a point of w- during that schooling where you're like, okay, I'm going to be a curator of jewelry? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing. And, and at the time, there wasn't such a thing. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, so I'm there. Basically, I remember sitting in one of my classes and someone saying something about museum collections. And I, like, raised my hand, like, what's that? Like, oh. I didn't know that museums had things behind the gallery walls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that there was I can storage. totally relate to that. Yeah. I felt so dumb now. I mean, I'm working in a museum, but I had no idea. Again, I did yeah. not know what I was getting into. This is a fashion and textile studies program, and a mm. lot of it was museum-based, museum practice as part of the subtitle. Um, and so I I was dating my now husband. We had started dating like a year before I went to, I moved to New York, and I wanted to come back here to do an internship in between the two semesters. Yeah. Um, and so the program director at FIT said they had um, a lot of alumni at the MFA and that she thought she could help me. And so um, it turned out that the curatorial department at the MFA wasn't so interested in having an intern, yeah. but the textile conservation department was. And mm-hmm. so they took me on, and then I ended up working like part-time with textile conservation, part-time in the textile and fashion arts department mm-hmm. as an intern. Um, at the time, the MFA was doing a major renovation, and where the textile and fashion collection was housed was getting um, demolished for the new space, and so they needed to move all of the collection off-site, and so I helped that summer with that. And from what I can tell, I went on a few dates with the art handler that works at a gallery or museum in Philly. Um, but he's been describing to me how they are having construction 
and his job he thinks about like dust and how the dust affects the textiles and how even just picking up some of those textiles to move them can be an all-day affair so for me in my mind having this insight I'm like oh you spent the summer like packing things up and moving them but I'm sure it's like far more complicated than any of us could even think about yeah it was pretty complicated the conservators had worked out this elaborate system of creating you know hangings moving the hanging storage from where it was onto these carts that were then going to be moved to our new off-site facility where they were going to be put into beautiful new cabinets but Mm -hmm. over the course of the summer like three months I mean we did a fraction of what was done you know of the move that needed to happen that's crazy so you do this internship? So I do this internship, and then um, I hear rumblings during the summer that there, there might be a one-year opportunity after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I go back to FIT, and I get a call like in March from the head of, again, conservation, not curatorial, saying, you know, would I be interested in coming back to work on this one-year project to be a um, collections care specialist on a project that was going to photograph all of the Asian textiles in the collection? So I said, yes, right? Like, yeah, that is I was so excited specific also. in March of, you know, my graduating year to have a job. So I That's was crazy. Psyched. What were they going to pay you? Do you remember oh, what they were God, like? It was, it was awful. And I didn't Boston's even know so that I could expensive. ask for more money. Oh, yeah, sure. I would be. I mean, you're so like. I was just eager. happy to like be coming back and having a job. It, yeah. I was really naive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the pay was horrible. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, that's something I've also found to be interesting. The more people I meet that work at museums, you would assume my perception of museums is that they're just like you know it's a museum it's grand it's prestigious like you must have to have so much training to even be able to work there but then when I find the type of pay that my friends get I'm like oh that's kind of not great it's like um yeah just like you know museums have an interesting history when it comes to pay because for many many years if not generations the people who are taking those jobs like didn't necessarily need to rely on that salary and so oh. it's, a, it's a field that's very newly professionalized, and I think it's still really struggling with how to pay people properly, That is especially such a, in an expensive city like Boston. Yeah, that's such a wild perspective that I've never even really thought about. Because, oh, I get it, because it's like probably a lot of people who are pretty well off that can dedicate the time for free to like do right. this kind and of work. Right, and so it didn't, the salaries didn't stay, you know, mm. relatable to other fields or to, you know, other other places that where people had similar education mm-hmm. you know and qualifications and so we're playing some catch-up yeah um so you have this job and you start it and you make it work did you love it like what was your day so it was one like? year so yeah. it was actually a kind of funny day to day it was a closed gallery in the museum mm-hmm. and it was me and another person who had the same job as me and a photographer and we spent every day in this photography studio moving textiles onto the photography kind of setup and then back off um at the end of the day we put all the textiles back and we started again the next day it was like groundhog day oh my god for, for a year, year. There was no, there were no windows. We were in this dark space. Yeah, we got to know each other really well. Okay, so question. So you didn't like your first career, so you go to FIT, and then you get this job, and you're stuck in a windowless room, moving textiles, <laughs> doing the same thing every day. Did you question your decisions? Because <laughs> that sounds kind of not like a fun job at all. No, offense. I got to see beautiful things, but yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was. It was definitely like a way to get in the door. Yeah, um, we all got to take those jobs yeah. sometimes. 
There was also a curator working on the project, and she kind of left the project midway through, and the head of the curatorial department said, you know, would you help out and kind of finish cataloging some of these things? So um, that's where things changed, and I, I moved towards jewelry because I was sitting in this little office, which now I could see a window, kind of like across there the hallway. There you go. Yes, at progress. Least. Um, and Yvonne Markowitz, who was then the, the new, brand-new jewelry curator, came to me and asked me what I knew about jewelry. And what did you know about jewelry? Nothing. Okay. I love this kind of stuff. When like, you know, because you, you see people with these amazing jobs and you're like, oh, that person, sometimes I just imagine I'm like, oh, that person obviously has been obsessed with jewelry their whole life. They grew up loving jewelry, maybe making it. Well, that's true. It. I mean, I certainly loved it and appreciated it, but yeah. it's weird to think I came out of a, per- a master's program where I studied fashion for two years yeah. and really knew nothing about jewelry. I mean, my master's yeah. um, thesis did did focus a little bit on jewelry but I really didn't know anything and it's taken me years of thinking like why fashion and jewelry are so separate and I really think it's because of the materials yeah yeah but then yeah but then to be put into that position um sometimes it just takes being at the right place at the right oh, it's time totally the right place the right time and I can yeah. I can still remember her walking in and having this conversation I really had only met her to say hello we didn't really know each other yeah um and I said I, I don't know anything about jewelry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I thought <clears throat> that would be the end of the conversation and she said um I remember specifically she said I'm a very good teacher and I'll teach you Okay, so <laughs> she's like, I'll mentor you to do this. We totally. need somebody. Yeah. Sometimes you also like just need somebody that you know you can trust or like will take it on with a kind of, oh, is this the right word? Veracity? Is that the right word? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that is. Right. Okay, yeah. shake your head. Yeah. Um, no, but I know, know mentoring is important to you too. And I mean, yeah. for me, you know, to get to where I am right now, it, it was all about mentoring. Yeah. Yvonne and I immediately became really close. She was an amazing and still is an amazing, you know, resource for me and teacher. Yeah. Um, and I worked for her for two years on a book project that she was doing because mm-hmm. um, my money was about to run out on the textile project I was working oh, on. Oh, yeah. So I was you only kept there hopping for a jobs. Year. So I was hoping they would find something else for me. And so yeah. Yvonne needed someone for two years. Um, so I came on with her and... Um, and then that led to the jewelry and the rest is history. Yeah, I started working in jewelry. She introduced me all over the place. She had um, co-founded an organization called the Association for the Study of Jewelry and Related Arts. Azra, okay, and I like they, that. And they have an annual conference, and um, they also look, you know, across time and place at jewelry. And so I got to meet a lot of people. I remember the very first kind of jewelry artist I think I met was Jennifer Trask. Oh wow, that's yeah. a nice one. It was a good one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a good one. Um, and so I just I met Bella that way. I mean Bella uh, Naiman, yeah. uh, and I just met a ton of people. And um, th- I found the field to be so enthusiastic and supportive in a way that fashion just wasn't. Yeah. Um, and you know Vaughn was so helpful in guiding me. And you know I, I I can see more clearly what she was doing in retrospect, but at the time I didn't really I didn't really know you know that she was thinking about a retirement plan. <laughs> Okay, so you're at the museum. They have these positions that are like, it's kind of like when you're like a visiting professor where you take like a one year, when someone takes a sabbatical and you fill their position. So you know that there's going to be an end to your time at that position. But you're in this organization and you keep finding other jobs to kind of jump onto, which is smart. I like that. And then this woman who in the back of her mind is like, 
I'm going to be out of here soon. <laughs> but you can't say it too soon because then they all start to be like. And she was new to the position. So she yeah. had great foresight to even be thinking, you know, who's going to replace me? Yeah. Oh my and God. I didn't realize it until much later what she was doing. Yeah. And I don't know that she was thinking that from the very beginning. We haven't really had that conversation. But, yeah. you know, looking back, it makes sense that she was planning. Yeah. Okay. So then you had to apply to your position or were you appointed? So there's more between then and now. Oh, let's go, please. <laughs> I Yeah. I was like, it was that fast for you? Good God. What am I doing wrong? So now that's 2008. So she uh-huh. hires me for two years. And so in 2010, like my money's up again. Oh, right. Yeah. And so she that's said, stressful, by the it's way. It's so stressful. Ugh. So she said, well, what are you doing next? And I said, well, I hope that you're going to keep me. Mm-hmm. And she said, I really think you need to go get a PhD. Oh, that's not probably what you wanted to hear. <laughs> wasn't what I wanted to hear, although I wasn't entirely surprised. I mean, I at the time, and still, the field is really transitioning between people who had masters, and that was enough, to yeah, people yeah. who have PhDs. And so she was right that I did need to go and get a PhD. And so I found a teaching job where I taught full-time for four years while I started my PhD coursework. Okay. What did you teach? I ran a fashion design and merchandising program. I had two associate degree programs and one um, bachelor's degree program. Oh, where was that at? It was just down the street at a school called Fisher College. They're on Beacon Street in Boston. Never heard of them. But I had about 100 students in my programs. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. It was one of the strongest programs at the school. And then on top of that, you're getting your PhD. And on top of that, I left, you know, at 3.30 so that I could get down to Newport, Rhode Island by 6 o'clock when my classes started at Salve Virginia University. Um, how's your personal life during this time? <laughs> oh, what, whatever happened to that boyfriend? <laughs> so we got married, but not, not, we got married in 2011. Okay. So he was with you through all of this kind of. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. So how long does it take to get a PhD? I think it really varies. I think some people would say I did it pretty quickly in six years, but it felt like an eternity at the time. <laughs> I think you're my first person I've had on here with a PhD. Can really? we break this down a little bit more? I've really grasped the concept of uh, MA or MFA, right? Like typically they're like two or three years, et cetera. But what is the thing about PhDs? Like is... What do you do? So a lot of times, like a master's program feeds into a PhD, in which, yeah. in which case, like you've done all your coursework as, in, as a master's degree student, and you're just further specializing as a PhD student. Mm-hmm. For me, because it was never like none of my degrees are a direct path, so one didn't build on the next. I have yeah. a degree in psychology, and then fashion and textile studies, and my PhDs in humanities. And so mm-hmm. there was like a lot of extra coursework and legwork and getting you know that path to be semi straight. <laughs> So, Why humanities? Like, what does that mean to study humanities? Um, well, Sorry, the so research <laughs> question of the program is what it means to be human in a technological world. And so what technology oh. meant in that description is anything from an alphabet to a pencil to a computer. Okay. Really like this big, broad sense of what technology is. How did you end up choosing that? So... I, it would not have been the program that I would have chosen if I felt I had a lot of options, but yeah. like, where's there a PhD for jewelry? Or where's uh-huh. there a PhD for fashion? Like, they don't exist. Oh, okay. So I had to, you know, if I was going to go forward with fashion, there's like a lot of, there's programs elsewhere. Like I could go, now there's more in New York than there were at the time, but there's like random programs else other places in the United States mm-hmm. London was an obvious place to go I didn't really want to leave here I wasn't really in a position where I felt like I financially could just go to London for you know 
who knows how long to work on my PhD. Um, So a friend of mine had started this program. She was a fashion merchandising professor, and she told me about the professor who ran the program who used to teach history at RISD, and he really got it. He understood um, jewelry and fashion and the body. He had studied weightlifting, actually, history and history of, like, physique and physicality I guess okay yeah like who knew there was these areas to focus on and so I went and met with him and he was totally open to thinking about fashion and jewelry and I really liked him I liked the program um so you know I took I think I had to take 10 classes and it was classes like in philosophy and religion and ethics Mm -hmm. uh really far-reaching which at the time and even sometimes while I was going through them it felt like it had nothing to do with jewelry yeah but I think in the end it gave me a really um, broad understanding of what jewelry is and how it relates to um, the arts in general, to humanity in general, how it relates to history. And so I think it gave me the ability to kind of think about and talk about jewelry in a, in a different way. Yeah. And so with the PhD program, was there like a, when going into it, they're like, yeah, you're going to do this and then you'll be done in four years. It. It's so there's the 10 go- classes and, you know, like being a full-time PhD student, sometimes just taking one class or two classes. So it goes slow. So it's heady. Yeah. Huh. So one semester I took two classes. Most of the time I took one. So it was really like the slow progression of finishing the coursework. Mm -hmm. And then once the coursework's done, you have to take oral exams. You take a written exam and then you start to work on your dissertation. Should I be calling you Dr. Emily Storer? Yeah, I think that you should. I worked really hard for that. Oh my goodness, I'm so <laughs> sorry. I am calling you doctor from here on out. That is crazy. Um, you really should lead with that more, by the way. Um, well, congratulations. And Thank so, you. Uh, oh, dissertation. Hmm. The, how, how was that? Well, I mean, I was researching fun. Hollywood jewelry, so it was kind of fun. Ooh, okay. So you guys, <laughs> did I touch on this already? That we accidentally, well, we met on a plane. We were sitting next to each other on a plane. And you, we saw some guy across the hall on the, the aisle. plane. The yeah. aisle. Yes, sorry. Words. Um, who we thought, he had a giant ring on. He I remember did. pointing it out and being like, oh my God. And then you started talking and I was like, <laughs> who are you? Um, and I think that's how I kind of like figured out like your role. Yeah, so the guy across the aisle, I was pretty sure he had a World Series ring on. (laughs) I had just curated an exhibition at the MFA of David Ortiz's World Series rings because he had just retired from the Red Sox. So I had this intimate understanding of what those rings looked like. I'm pretty sure that is what it was, whether it was his or someone else's. I don't know. We we didn't figure that out. It was, you guys, it was just one of those really amazing moments where it's like something so random being like, wow, that guy (laughs) looks like he maybe has like this World Series ring on. And then the person that you just met next to you being like, well, done. No, 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 no. Like a Wikipedia page. I was like, okay, great. Um, but we just kept staring at him. Ugh, we really should have just been like, hey, listen, we should let have us just look. asked him. We yeah. should have asked. We thought about it. We didn't. Mm, whatever. I think we made him feel really uncomfortable because I think yeah. he could hear us talking about him. Yeah, we did. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, jewelers, curators. Um, so, so you get your PhD. Yeah. During this time, do you keep in touch with your mentor at the museum? Yep. So when you're a teacher, you have summers free, right? And I had lots of free time, right? I wasn't doing Mm -hmm. much, just teaching full time and doing my PhD. (laughs) Yeah, you had so much time. (laughs) So a couple of those summers, Yvonne hired me to be a consulting curator at the MFA. Other times I was working for one of the museum trustees as a researcher, uh, writing some 
publications that he um, that he self-published on different aspects of his personal collection. Sorry, what's a museum trustee mean? Is that someone with money? That's that, someone like, with money, yeah. He's a collector or supporter or benefactor. And then he just needs somebody to write about the things that he's... So he, his name was Fred Scharf, and he was an okay. avid collector um, mm-hmm. of many, many things. And one of the things that he was really interested in was jewelry. He particularly liked design, and so he would kind of... So I remember the first project I worked on with him, he just handed me this backpack that was full of design drawings and told me to figure it out and he paid me to work for him for the summer and just figure out what this you know backpack full of drawings was and it turns out that what it was was a lot of drawings that had been made by a a manufacturer's jeweler who was working in New York during the post-World War II period his name was Louis Ferron and he was making most of Schlumberger's jewelry for Tiffany's among other things Um, but he was one of these jewelers that nobody knows because you know the way American marking laws are those marks don't go on American jewelry and so you don't get a maker's mark Um, so those jewels that he made were Mark Schlumberger and Mark Tiffany's and so he was really unknown and so over the course of the summer and and longer because it's still something I come back to now and then you know years later I learned who this man was yeah Um, that's a fun job yeah it was really fun that's crazy I want a job like that that's so (laughs) random huh yeah so Yvonne you know helped me find opportunities like that yeah Um, so then you finish your PhD as that was ending what did you think your next move was going to be? Were you happy in your teaching position? I loved teaching, but I yeah. also, like it was a small school, I kind of, I wasn't, I didn't feel like the future was certain, and I, I felt like I wanted to come back into the museum world. So I had called Yvonne and I said, like, you know, what might this look like? Are you really thinking of retiring? Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah, I really am. Um, and so she said, we should really think about this. Yeah. And so, she, like, very soon after she and I had that initial conversation, um, we sat down with the then museum director and she said, I want to retire and I want Emily to take my job. (laughs) Whoa, that's nuts. Yeah, so I mean, there was more of a process than that, but like the wheels were set in motion. Yeah. Um, That's exciting. Yeah, it was really exciting and I feel really fortunate. And I think that for the institution, I mean, she wasn't in the position that long, I think seven years. It was a really seamless transition because she had taught me to think like her and to look at at jewelry like her. And I knew the collection really well and it's a huge collection. So it did kind of make it much easier to move from the first Kaplan curator to the second. Yeah. Okay, so you're the Kaplan curator. I'm just going to call you that. You're the jewelry <laughs> curator. I don't want to say the whole title. I don't know if I could. Sorry. I'll That's practice. okay. Um, so what is your, what's your day-to-day like? What, what do you do? Is it paperwork mostly? <laughs> There's really no two days that are alike. It is a oh. lot of paperwork, um, but not always. You know, it's a lot yeah. of travel. It's a lot of... Um, it's a lot of like relationship building is probably one of the biggest things I do with everyone mm-hmm. from artists to collectors to, um, yeah, I mean, every all the different stakeholders that exist in the field. Oh my God, I feel like I would love that. <laughs> I mean, you I know, love my best days, I guess and, yeah. I'm like talking to people and like thinking about jewelry. I'm doing research on the collection and on the worst days, I'm like running around to meetings, yeah. trying to get things done in a big bureaucracy. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sure. So then, um, are you always kind of thinking like a few years out? Like, do you get to plan 
solely jewelry exhibitions for the MFA? So we have a jewelry gallery. We actually have two jewelry galleries, but we oh. have one jewelry gallery that I oversee. Um, that was also a gallery space that was supported by the Kaplan Family Foundation. And that space rotates, and it always shows off some highlight of our collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now it has an exhibition up called Boston Made Arts and Crafts Jewelry and Metalwork that looks at... Um, jewelry from the founding of the Society of Arts and Crafts in 1897 through the stock market crash in 1929. But I'm already working on the next exhibition that opens in December 2021. Yeah, And really thinking beyond that for what comes after that. See, I think that's kind of crazy. Once I've gained insight with people that work at museums or curators, how far out you're actually always thinking and working. Yeah. Um, Because so much goes into it that you don't even think about. Exactly. Huh. I like that. Emily's looking at her phone because her kid's about to get (laughs) dropped off. Wait a minute. How long ago? Okay. Your kid's 19 months old? He's 19 months old. So you've been a working mother for 19 months. How's that? It's rough. I think you're, um, are you the first mother I've had on the podcast? Maybe. Really? That can't, no, you had, you've interviewed Bella. Oh, right. Bella's mother. Yes. But I haven't had and I want to do a whole episode that's dedicated to that soul perspective of like working as a mother, which I haven't gotten to, but I get to touch on it. But I did want to ask you that, like, um, how has that changed? Because you hold such a big position and then you also are, you know, you created a human. <laughs> how do you find that balance? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, I travel yeah. a ton for work. And I mean, for me, that's the biggest stress is being away. I mean, yeah. it's so hard to, I mean, first of all, childcare is so expensive. Like I didn't even really oh know God. how expensive it was. I'm lucky that I live close to my family. So he's only in daycare two and a half days, but it's like, a huge percentage of my salary. I've heard about that where yeah. sometimes it's even cheaper just to have the partner not work. Yeah, I can totally see that. Instead I of mean, if he working went, to pay for... If he went full-time, it would be like college tuition, not at a state school. Oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> um, does the museum have any kind of thing to help out with that? Like, how did this, the museum Remember when you? I said the museum has a long way to go in terms of figuring mm, things out? Like, right. the idea of having working mothers in a museum is is as new as having people who really need a salary were you but you had your position when you got pregnant and started on this journey to motherhood I'm assuming yeah how did you have maternity leave I did yeah okay um yeah I was paid for most of it I was paid for all of it I was paid 100 percent for most of it okay yeah. oh so at some point they took it down to like a percentage 60%, of 60 your... percent yeah oh, okay yep um how long was your maternity leave it was 12 weeks that's it? Okay, so I was talking about somebody who just ended her maternity leave, and she had a really cool job as an artist or art director. And I think she went back for two days and then was like, well, we're done here. And she's like, I'm putting in my notice. Yeah, like, I can I tried. see that. She's like, and... You I mean, know, I she- pay like a ridiculous amount for the daycare that he goes to, but it's partly because I love them. And I just, I was dropping him off and he was 12 weeks old. I had to like really yeah, love you them. Also ha- yeah, you have to love them. <laughs> You're giving them your human. Um, so have you, well, you have to travel for your job. There's no way around it. Me as a single woman without kids that doesn't anticipate having them, I'm like, let me travel all I can. <laughs> but I could see how that'd be a struggle. Does your husband, you got, he must be like a total rock in that he scenario. He is, yeah. yeah. I mean, his job is here. He doesn't travel for work. My Ooh. parents are here. Mm-hmm. Although, as you said, Boston traffic's crazy. My family lives south of the city. I live north of the city. So that mm-hmm. getting from, you know, getting through the city can be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, 
What's so, your husband do? I'm sorry, I didn't ask. He's a project manager for a um, moving and storage company. He works for a okay. lot of, um, he actually works for Tufts a lot of the time. Oh, funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> doing project management for some of their corporate um, their corporate clients. Nice. Okay, so I'm sure you know that this uh, question's coming. Um, can I ask about your salary? Like, because you're a jewelry curator. I, mm-hmm. You have a PhD. I would assume that that, you know, relates to the way in which you're compensated. But I know that that's not always true in terms of, like, it doesn't always equal, like, the biggest paycheck that you think. Um, can I ask how much you make? Ooh, you can ask. Okay. I can ask. <laughs> can I ask for... Okay. Are you comfortable with a ballpark figure? Sure. Okay. We're going to do something where it's, like, you know, you check a box, like, age 20, 25, 30, 35. Um, okay, so box A is like thirty to fifty thousand. Box B is fifty to eighty thousand. I'll make them big. Um, B is eighty fifty to eighty. C is eighty to a hundred and ten. Do we need more boxes? No, we don't need more boxes. I'm in box B. Okay, great. We're going to stop. <laughs> You're like, oh, don't come on out. And I'll tell you that I often don't work just one job because I often teach as well as work as a curator, and I still would be in B. Okay, gotcha. All right, that's really bringing in Solidly in the middle of B. Okay, so question. <laughs> uh, Boston is expensive. Um, do you get benefits? Yeah, we do get great benefits. Oh, that's yeah. good. Especially since you have a kid. Yeah. Healthcare? Yes. 401k? Yes. Pay time off? Yes. All right. Now we're talking. <laughs> um, you know, you got to milk it. Uh, got an expense account when you... No, that's complicated. <laughs> you know what? I think we had this conversation. The hardest thing for me right now and no offense to universities or whatnot, but um, you do things and you don't get paid for a really long time. Yeah, like I'm always floating a lot of money on my credit card. Yeah, I've actually, I put down my foot and luckily my friend is a tenure track professor, so she bought the plane ticket, but I was like, I am not buying another plane ticket to haul my butt to another university. They're paying the pay, buying the penny tickets. Cause I had an issue with a school where their finances got frozen and I had invested like $800 to get there. Yeah. And I was like, y'all, I don't have just $800 to yeah. like be like, oh, okay, well, when you get your finances unfrozen, can you pay me back and then also pay me for the work I did? It's kind of nuts. So we've talked about that. It it's is really nuts. Difficult. And so I'm always, you know, having to float money up front to get reimbursed later. Yeah, that's kind of, I feel like that's a really hard aspect of jobs. It's so hard. But then when those checks come, you're so happy. You're like, oh, it did come. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> you can pay my credit card bill. So I do know we have to, this is going to be a little bit on the shorter side because the little one is coming to us. Um, well, with traffic, he could, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Boston traffic. Woo. Plus we have a my dinner reservation. My husband thought he'd be here a half an hour ago. I know. I'm kind of surprised he's not here yet. And I was like, bring him in. <laughs> Put him on the mic. Um so other things I did want to ask about, you are hustling on the side, which is kind of crazy to me because I would think a jewelry curator would only have to do jewelry curation. You just sound so fancy. Yeah. I can't, I can think of very few moments in my life where I've only had to have one job. Mm, same sister. Maybe no, maybe never. Oh, <laughs> and now you're a mom. So you forever eternally yeah. have like at least two jobs. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing because you wanted, didn't ask about all the waitressing and everything else no because <laughs> I knew I wanted to get to the good stuff like typically yeah. when we have longer time I'm like I'm gonna ask all these things I think your interview is definitely have to be one that we like continue again because you there's it's so interesting to go from uh working for the DA to going to FIT. No, it's a huge shift. But yeah. in a way, it's not. You know, I've told people I think it's a huge shift before, and, and I've had people say to me, well, not really, because you're always acting as an advocate, right? Yeah. So I went from being an advocate for people to being an advocate for objects, and in some cases still for people, as I try and get yeah, different artists, artists work or different firms represented in the museum. A lot yeah. of it is the same, you know, building a case. Okay, so question. You're a jewelry curator. What if you don't want your job anymore. I'm assuming that these types of jobs you hold for a very long time. Well, yeah, because they're few and far between, right? Yeah, you're going to like, you don't leave unless you, yeah. Um, but if you had to leave, what type of work do you think you would go in since there is not technically a lot of curators of jewelry for fine art Yeah, I don't know. It's complicated um, because there's not an obvious, I mean, it's a prestigious position, but there's not an obvious place for me to go. You know, yeah. academic programs that have a jewelry component they're in usually in making they're not in studying the history or mm -hmm. you know thinking around an object and so I don't know where I would fit yeah just don't leave <laughs> <laughs> but it's a question I know you had wanted to ask me too about like what I say to people who want to do what I'm doing and it's oh, really yeah. hard because mm -hmm. what do you say when there's you know very few opportunities well, I think that's a big part of why I love the work I do at the podcast because so many people aspire to do things, but they don't always understand the path that people have taken to get there. And so when you hear somebody say, I'm a jewelry curator, but I didn't really know much about jewelry when I got that <laughs> job. And you're like, great. So why am I studying it and trying to make it? You know, it's like there's no clear path to a lot of right. um, positions you grow up being like, oh, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, a firefighter, a vet. Right. Like, and those are very clear p paths. But it's so much more complicated in these really interesting positions that people get to hold in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have envisioned being here. This wasn't a path that even existed when I started, you know, graduate school. And so I think... I've really benefited from just being open-minded, but I've also really benefited from being in the right place at the right time. It really comes down to that. And I like, um, you know, I think I referred to it as lucky before, and I've mentioned this on the podcast many times, but Jonathan Wall was like, luck is being prepared when opportunity presents itself. And I think that's just something that has become a mantra because it makes so much sense to me. It's like even being at the right place in the right time, you could still not have gotten the position if you weren't right. showing up or doing the work or putting yourself, presenting yourself in a way that made it possible. Right. And that's true. I mean, I said yes to everything. I went to everything that I could. I participated mm -hmm. in everything. Um, and I think that's a big part of it, you know, just being enthusiastic and being there and wanting to learn. Yeah. Do all the things. Um, well, Emily, I have so many more things I could talk to you, but we're <laughs> going to have to wrap this up. Is there anything that I didn't touch on? I do want to ask this. What is the fa your favorite part of your job? Oh, I really love um, bringing an exhibition together. I love the team that I work with to make that happen. You know, there's mm -hmm. a designer and mount maker and conservator, and I love the moments when it's like the four of us working together to figure out that perfect way that the case is going to come together. You know, yeah. these little details that the visitor in the gallery never gets to see or never gets to really think about, because if you've done it right, they don't think about it. 
Right. Um, but kind of moving things around to figure out, like, yes, these two objects are just perfect together. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the... I love those moments. Like, I've started geeking out now and looking at how jewelry is mounted in museums. Oh, my God. Because I have such a better Do understanding. you have to come to the MFA because... Our mount makers are amazing. Are your mount makers amazing? How many mount makers do you have? We have two. Cool. Brett and Kim, and they're phenomenal. And they're they're metal. I actually took Bob Ebendorf on a tour through the gallery, and he was like, "Who makes your mounts?" And he wrote a note to them, saying how much he appreciated their mounts, and they loved that. I mean, I think they rarely get the credit that they deserve because the jewelry wouldn't look nearly as good as it does if they didn't do what they do. Yeah, they have to be unseen. In right. a way. And it takes a lot of skill to be unseen in that way. It's true. And then also, how's your personal jewelry collection now? <laughs> I mean, it, I see those Tara Lockley yeah, spoken Tara out Lockley under your headphones. Earrings. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of earrings. I wish I had more necklaces. What's your brooch game like? Because I feel <laughs> like a curator of jewelry should be yeah, rocking some brooches. I've got three brooches. Yeah. Yeah. Last time I saw Adrian Dalton, she was really trying to sell me on the brooch. And I feel like I need to think more about how to bring brooches into my life. We're going to talk. Okay. Because I really, I mean, I almost had a brooch. I forgot to put it on, but it's um, Marta Matson. I mm. bought like one of her, I not like a big one. They're all like, oh yeah. No, I only got like one little wing. That's all I can afford. But I, I could earlier afford this it. week I wore an Amelia Tolkien brooch. Ooh, <laughs> see? Yes. You got to advocate. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like that. Um, I will say that the jewelry that I do have personally is all made and designed by women. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I'm sure like going to snag and things like that, you can't just help but be like, okay, I need to be dripping in gems like all the time. <laughs> I do feel a responsibility to wear something. Yeah. If yeah. I if I met a jewelry curator and they didn't have jewelry on, I'd be a little like, okay. Well, Yvonne would sometimes never wear jewelry and I can understand why you might go in that direction, but I oh. feel like in making a commitment to the field, you should wear jewelry you should I wish I could wear more of it spoken like a true jewelry curator (laughs) um well Emily thank you so much for your time thank you let's wrap this up so we can go find your little one and then go eat some delicious things together sounds good thank you all right all right everyone this has been another episode of perceived value the podcast broaching the subject of value with artists in Boston until next time Perceived Value is recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. If you love the podcast and you want to show your support, become our patron. Visit patreon.com slash perceivedvalue to learn more. Or check out our website at perceivedvaluepodcast.com and click on the support page. As always, thank you for listening.